Now, I, I have not had a wet relapse in all these years. I've had many emotional and mental relapses. There has to be mindfulness. There has to be that 11th step of prayer and meditation, however you want to define those. And how do I practice the principles or what tools do I have that I'm not using? Or what tools am I using that don't seem to work anymore because I've gotten rusty or they don't apply anymore? Welcome to the Seasons of Sobriety podcast. This is a podcast where you can join in the journey of other recovering alcoholics and addicts. You'll be on the road with them as you listen to how each person came into recovery and how they persevered through times of anger, sadness, fear, and joy. I'm your host, Howard M. I'm here to share my own experience as well as the experience of other recovering brothers and sisters. I am so grateful you have decided to join me today. This episode features Barry L. from Southern Minnesota. Barry has been sober since October 29, 1988. Here now is my interview with Barry L. Welcome everyone to the Seasons of Sobriety podcast. I'm here today with Barry L. from Southern Minnesota. Barry came into the program at the age of 40. He is now 73 and has been sober since October 29th of 1988. Barry, I'd like to welcome you to the Seasons of Sobriety podcast. Good to be here, Howard. Thank you for, for having me. Of course. I would like you to take us back to September 1988 or around that time and tell us what was happening and perhaps what led you into your recovery journey. Well, first, I was I was a binge drinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the kind of guy who'd go months without drinking inappropriately. Mm-hmm. But when when I that was because I didn't want anybody to know how much I drank and and how deep the problem probably was. Mm-hmm. But uh, even to the point where when I finally admitted it to my wife that I was probably an alcoholic and needed to go for treatment, she said, "And when do you drink?" Ooh. My counselor never believed me that that was what she said and that she must have known. But no, she didn't. Uh, she really didn't. I was very good because I was able to leave home and I, I would go someplace and we had a cabin up in northern Pennsylvania at the time. And I, uh, I would go up there for a few days and get drunk for three days and then come home and not drink in front of her or anybody to any great extent. So I was I was also a pastor of a church. Mm-hmm. I uh, I'm an ordained minister, and so that meant I had to keep heavy drinking hidden. Okay, uh, and all that played into the fact that uh, as a binge drinker, I didn't know that was my problem. Interesting. I I felt I had all kinds of other things going on, but I, that I was hiding quite well as, as also. But you, you, when you said September, it, it brought me back to an event right before September. It was the end of August mm-hmm. as we were getting ready to start Sunday school. And uh, right at the last minute, Thursday before the first day of Sunday school, one of the teachers calls and says, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. Sorry. And basically that was it. Mm-hmm. I got so angry. I remember getting so I was stomping around the kitchen, swearing and yelling. I thought, gee, am I going crazy? And I remember that very, I mean, this is 33 plus years ago now. Mm-hmm. And I remember that. And later, when I went into treatment, I remembered that as part of that process. 
what then happened, I was involved, you know, gee, I don't even, now I don't even remember which part of it was, but at our church, we decided we were going to do a, a workshop on alcoholism. Okay. And I got in contact with a couple of people that I knew who were in recovery. And they got together a couple of people to come and do this workshop. Okay, just to break in, this workshop was before you got sober. Before this is yeah. all before I'm sober. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I believed I came from, a, and I still believe I came from an alcoholic family. So I had an interest in doing this. I'm a mm -hmm. pastor. I know I have alcoholics in my congregation. Sure. Let's get this information out there. So during this uh, workshop, one of the people starts talking about things, and I'm going, "Wait a minute." I do that. Wait a minute. I do that too. Huh? No, that can't be. So that was the first step. Oh, that was the first part of it, not a step. That was the first part of it. Mm -hmm. Then another pastor in town suggested, you know, Barry, we could get something started here in town for recovery for the churches. There's this workshop over that the Episcopal diocese runs over in Milwaukee. Uh, we maybe you want to go to it. So I said, sure. It was ministry to alcoholics and their families. So I went. Um, in the Tuesday, I had to run home and get something. It was it wasn't that far from home. It wasn't it was only like a fifteen minute drive. I ran home to get something and bring it back. And I thought maybe I could stop and get something to drink while I'm going. I'm at a conference for the alcoholism conference, right? <laughs> of course. And so on. Wednesday sometime, this was a Monday through Friday, Wednesday sometime to fill out one of those self-evaluations. And I think I checked off five or six of the 20, mm -hmm. 25. Yeah. And I said, okay, I, that's not a whole lot. That's not a majority. I must be okay until you read the bottom. It says, if you check off two or more of these, chances are you have a problem with alcohol. And Everything came to a, a halt at that point in my head. The next day, I talked to one of the leaders who happened to work at a treatment program. And he says, in his best non-committal way, well, why don't you call and make an appointment for an assessment? Yeah. Right. So I did. But I knew at that moment that I had a problem, that it was alcoholism. Uh, he later told me he's, they've had others come to treatment or go to treatment following this workshop, but never who made the appointment in the middle of the workshop. Right. Uh, that's how it started. Yeah. Okay. I went to a local, I went to a local treatment program in Milwaukee. That was a professional's program, program for impaired professionals. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, was it specifically clergy or was it uh, no, physicians? No, it, it was actually started for police chiefs originally. Okay. Uh, because of the guy who, who then became my friend who was at this workshop. But it, it was mostly for doctors, nurses, mm -hmm. professional people. Clergy went there too, obviously. Because they had a full two-year program of follow-up. Uh, so they did the whole process of, of requiring it. They were 12-step based in, and medically based. They, they did both. This is 1988. There wasn't a lot of medication used. Correct. The only medicine they used at that point was antabuse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nothing else existed. Nope. Not, the uh, anything we've learned since then, even in terms of depression, was hardly used at that point. Mm -hmm. So that's where I went. 
the irony of it is it was at a uh, it was at a medical it was at a uh, mental health hospital <laughs> okay <laughs> psych hospital and that tied in with that are you crazy hmm. <laughs> idea way back here all the irony of all that they required us to go to meetings every day mm-hmm it was not a locked unit in the sense that uh, we could go to meetings outside of in the community and we did we all we all did i fell in love with aa and the steps at that point uh it was like wow this is where i need to be hmm. and that even when i have not attended meetings as regularly such as due to covid and things like that yeah recently i uh i have never doubted the power of the 12 steps and of aa um now i will add to that i think any successful program and i've learned this from experience any successful program uh whether it be faith based secular uh psychiatry based if they work they're based on the same principles every single one of mm-hmm. them uh and that's something i discovered and it's very powerful because there are people who for different reasons sometimes shyness sometimes other issues who don't want to go to one particular kind and uh, i think we need to support those who find good recovery in other places i was lucky mm-hmm. I, you know there's plenty of aa meetings in my community in my area i was willing to drive back into milwaukee 40 miles away Okay. To go to meetings on a regular basis because it was that important to me. Hmm. Gotcha. That's where it started. Okay. And at this point, when you left treatment, uh, were you still uh, the pastor of the church, or did or how did that go about? Where you, you know, I, I'm guessing you had to talk to people there about what was going on. Yeah. Before I went, I met with all my elders, all hmm. my board members, and significant board members and said, I'm going into treatment. I sent out a letter that they would have received uh, probably the day I entered treatment, if I remember correctly, Mm -hmm. that said, I have entered a program for impaired professionals uh, due to a problem with drinking. I didn't say I was an alcoholic. I wasn't ready to say that publicly at that point. But I said that. Now, the interesting part of that is my wife was my co-pastor, okay. student co-pastor, so she continued pastoring while okay. I was doing that. Um, I was obviously right away in touch with my district president of, mm-hmm. of our denomination, and uh, he knew where I was, and I kept in touch with him. When I got out, I was at the recommendation of the treatment program. I only went back to work three-quarter time. No, half time and then three quarter time because uh, they wanted me to build a, a program because I stayed in aftercare as well for six months. Okay. Then I, m- I met with one of our bishops who happened to be a member of the congregation. And he said, well, you know, Barry, chances are that uh, you'll have to leave. You'll have to move, find a different congregation after this. Hmm. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, maybe, <laughs> but, uh, the treatment center says I shouldn't make any major change like that for a year. Okay. And he said, well, okay. Um, 11 years later I left. 
Right, right. <laughs> uh, I got my I got my eleven year chip at, the day before we moved. Okay. At my home meeting, which happened to be also in the basement of my church. <laughs> converted <laughs> to an AA meeting. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, converted. I, w- I would go from the from confirmation class on the third floor to choir on the second floor, and then come down to the basement and go to my AA meeting on Wednesday, my home meeting. Gosh, that's funny. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Everybody knew I I did not hide it. We talked about it. We had a two week workshop when I got back on alcoholism. Uh, that, that went into depth about it, and uh, at one point at the end of the second one, one of the elders said, "Well, I really appreciate this. It's really good stuff." But now we got to get back to work, Barry. Hmm. You're here, and we want to work with you. And we did. Uh, it was. It, we became not not in name, but in action, a recovering church in many ways. Many people had no. I had one person that I know of leave because of my admission. I was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm. I'd already been there four years when I. And this all started. Okay. So they knew me. We were we had a community. They were a great support. Uh, I still look back. You know, I, I left there uh, in 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but I look back with great fondness and great joy for the many opportunities I had there. And they helped me stay sober. Sure. Just by being accepting, just by being part of my life and continuing to be there. Hmm. So when you were uh, active as the pastor in the church, do you think having the background of, you know, I'll say divine teaching or theological teaching to maybe help people who felt flawed, even though they believed in God and, you know, that they felt less than, even though with their relationship and all, you know, all that. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit how, how you found yourself being of, of good use to people like that? People felt I got the feeling that people trusted that I knew what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just not just because I had that degree in the ordination and all of that, but because I also understood what pain was and I understood mm-hmm. how to be a failure internally, outwardly. I was a huge success, I thought anyway. I mean, and I was. People liked me. I was well liked. I was. I was well known in our denomination. Um, I I continued on and did workshops in our denomination on this. I worked with the council of churches on these things. Uh, so it was, I was not a, I was not quiet about it. I, but I wasn't out there saying, "Hey, I'm an alcoholic." Mm-hmm. I was out there saying, "There's a ministry. There's a work we can do." I worked with the school district on developing their their student assistance program. And, and and in the community on alcohol awareness and some prevention. We didn't, you know, we did, we're not a just say no kind of group. Okay. We actually looked at the issues. And, and I think I offered the community some opportunities when there weren't many communities doing that at that point in 1990, 91. Yeah. Yeah. We forget about uh, the, you know, that, that far yeah. back, it was, uh, <laughs> it, it wasn't common, like what you're talking about. No. Yeah. No. And so, you know, in a sense, it was a calling. Hmm. Uh, you know, I like a sec- all I like knew a, how to do. Yeah, like a second a calling. Pastor. Yeah, yeah, it's a second calling. Yeah, that's great. Uh, 
then uh, there's a lot of stories in here, but the one was I had nine months sobriety mm-hmm. and I get a phone call one evening. I'm in the midst of choir practice for my wife's ordination four days later. So this would be the end of June, 89. I get this call that uh, from a mother saying her son was drinking too much. This was a wedding I had done a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, could I go by and could I meet her there and we could talk with them? So I did. Uh, and I went both as pastor and as a 12-step call. Mm-hmm. And uh, I shared my experience, strength, and hope. As, you know, I only had nine months sobriety. You know, and, <laughs> Uh, breaking every rule in the book at that point, but I was there with his mother. I left that night and took him to treatment. He was in treatment before midnight that night. Uh, And he is still sober today. Wow. So he he has 32 years, at least as far as I know he is. Everything I have, I'm in contact with his wife and Facebook and things like that. But, Mm -hmm. uh, um, I came home, and it was by this time three in the morning, and standing in the kitchen, my wife was sleeping, my daughter was sleeping. I said, I'm going to go back and get my degree and in, in alcohol counseling. Hmm. And I went back and got my doctorate in doctorate ministry and uh, in counseling and got my license as, a, as an alcohol drug counselor. It, again, it was that sense of calling. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean everybody who becomes an alcoholic should become an alcohol counselor, but, and it was a doctor of ministry, which meant I kept, I kept the focus internally okay. on this is how to help people. That's what 12 steps all about. Mm. Yeah. Carry the message, however you carry it, uh, and practice the principles that that has been for me both as an individual and as a counselor the last line of the 12th step and practice these principles in all our affairs yeah that is maybe the second most important line in the whole 12 steps the first one being we admitted we were powerless right right well it's uh, yeah. that's important to me still is yeah i, I agree 100% if anyone who uh, listens to all the way to the end of the podcast as I wrap it up. I say a little line that says, uh, you know, if you're having trouble practicing the 12 principles, the steps in all your affairs, you may have too many affairs. Yeah, you may be right. You know, because yeah, it, you know, it's and like, you, well, you yeah. might want to just see what's going on and, and back off a little. And that way you might have a little more time to practice them. And in the long, in the long term picture, yeah, that's one of the ways I know. I can get a clue anyway that I may be in relapse. Now, I, mm-hmm. I have not had a wet relapse in all these years. I've had many emotional and mental relapses. Sure. I have been in relapse. It's happened in the last year uh, with COVID. Uh, nowhere near drinking. But it's, am I, am I practicing these principles? How do if I'm not applying my, these principles to this situation over here, 
then I'm in relapse. Yeah. It's it's interesting if you, um, well, years ago, what, what I did is I looked up the, the word relapse, and this was my first mm. in recovery. And because uh, I, I just didn't know exactly, like, does that mean to drink? What, what does it mean? And, and if you look up, you know, it means to return to a previous condition. Now, that may be drinking, or that may be you know, being a lousy employee, or that may be a, being a lousy father, or whatever it is, my, my previous condition, like you said, that is a signal for a guy like me, say, hey, guess what? You're ratcheting the wrong way. You're, right. you're, you're, you're loosening it up. And, you know, that, that's where things can go wrong. And, you know, using the, the disease concept, mm-hmm. one of the things I try and, and do, I, I use the phrase I relapse or whatever, but in, in reality, it's the disease that's relapsing. Mm-hmm. It's not a judgment on me that I'm a weak, poor, lousy person that I can't stay sober. It's I got a disease. And, uh, and now I know there's that's there's some controversy about that. And I understand that I, I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm willing to accept other ways of looking at it. But if you begin to judge a person because they have they end up going back for whatever reason to previous things, that's not necessarily means that they're weak and it may mean they're powerless mm-hmm. and that therefore they need support. They need to do this. They need to do that. Take your pick. There's a lot of stuff that goes on now. Yeah. Well, you, you said it right there. I think what happens for me is I have either stopped paying attention right. or I have stopped using the support that kept me, you know, kept me upright or I need more support now. And I don't want to think I do because, well, I have all this time and knowledge and all the experience sure. so i should know how to do this and i shouldn't need some and more support this is what happened last year i was in the midst of a mental health issue mm-hmm. emotional issue it wasn't mental health yet it would have gotten there but it was emotional i was overreacting to some stuff insomnia you know resentment on and on and on mm-hmm. And this happened three months in a row around a particular incident. And finally, after three months, I talked to my wife about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> after that, I hadn't done anything to anybody. Right. Well, I let, can let's this. wait three months or four months. <laughs> how about six months before we say, hey, there's something. Yeah, yeah sure. I got you. Yeah, we haven't lost all our skills to, right, to, no. to wait till the yeah. last minute. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so I was sitting there, and after 10 minutes of talking to her about it, she just kind of leaned forward and looked at me and said, are you thinking about drinking? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, that's that's nowhere near what's happening. But you're right on target. <laughs> that's yeah. exactly I'm in relapse. And uh, it'd take a long time after 33 years to get me back to drinking. Probably. I don't want to say that too loudly because knock on wood and and do step one again. But uh, it there's no way I want to go back to that. I, what I have is too important, too powerful, too yeah. too exciting. Uh, even when things aren't going right, it's still too good. But I'm going to play those games. I'm going to I'm going to be mentally. <laughs> I'm going to be a mental alcoholic. Give, give me a chance. I'll yeah. do it. Yeah. I'll do it. Yeah, because the ego, uh, as, as we've talked about, is this you know this force that wants to separate me. Right. You know and. And one of the ways you can do it is 
yeah, let, let's give him a little lack of sleep. Let's make him only think about himself for a while and yeah. let's see how well he does with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I learned that in way too many ways. One, one incident and it stands out. I was, Oh, what was I about four or five years sober at the time? Probably. Mm-hmm. And I was at a board meeting. Um, and one of the members of the board in a kind of back door way, I felt like it was a backdoor attack on me. Okay. Um, and it may have been, um, and I, the old Barry showed up and I, I said a few, few more than a few choice words and comments to him. This is sitting at a board meeting. I mean, mm. come on. Church board meeting. As a pastor. Yeah, was, right. As a pastor of the church, yeah. And I, it took me about maybe 45 seconds of this rant to realize what I was doing. Uh, I, it, I respond more quickly these days, three months now. But, no, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but it, was, it, it was like, what are you doing? And I apologized. I, right away I stopped it and said, let's, let's talk about this differently. But I went home and called and told my wife and said, tomorrow morning, I call my sponsor. And then tomorrow morning, I'm going to call my spiritual director, hmm. a, guy, a counselor, local pastoral counselor, who was my spiritual advisor. And so that I, I did something, although it, uh, it sure got in the way of some relationships and needed some amends and things like that before. But it, I realize I'm not, I'm not safe. Right. Right. The other, somebody was talking, I was talking to somebody the other day and they asked me a question and I said, when I got sick and tired of walking on eggshells around myself. Yeah. And that's what I would do. I I don't want to, don't want to step on my own toes. Mm. Uh, And uh, that's a sign that I'm perhaps not doing what I need to be doing at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Lately, the uh, term that resonates, I heard it uh, a while ago is, yeah, I'm tired of being a prisoner of my personality. Yes. Yes. And like, and I have the keys and I don't know where they are. And even if I found them, I I don't know where the lock is. I mean, the way he just teased it out was, was brilliant. And yeah, you know, that feeling stuck. Yeah. Yeah. It's real. Uh, and it happens and I, you know, it happens to everybody in some way or another. I mean, sure. there's nothing about being an alcoholic that makes mine any better or worse. It's just that mine is mine and this is the path that's going to take me down and I don't want to go down that path. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I have, I am fortunate. I have a whole bunch of tools some of which I don't have to use on a regular basis anymore mm. that uh, are still there. They're still in the toolkit. I still know how to use them. Uh, in fact, I help others learn how to use them, even when I'm not needing them today. Yeah. That's what I do for a living. You know, well, I'm, I'm sort of retired right now, but uh, with the, uh, it's really important that I, I not forget those tools in my toolkit. Yeah. Because my tools used to be, you know, silence, rage, and sarcasm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
So that that healed everything. And, you know, kept kept me, you know, away from you. Kept me away from them. Kept me away from myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay. until you find you're all alone, and you can't understand why nobody wants to talk to you. And and that's one of the scary things about the past two years with this pandemic. Uh, that so many of us ended up isolated. Yeah. Uh, and we needed to be. I mean, that's, uh, I'm not saying we should have all been out there romping around at parties and in the street. And I, as not at all, I'm, you know, my own particular view of it. But we ended up being isolated. We ended up, and if you're an introvert, like some of us are to begin with, that was that was heaven for the introverted yeah. alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, I, I was able to keep busy and do things. We'll talk about it later. But writing the book about my re- about recovery, not necessarily mine, and then moving from there. Um, a lot of people out there are stressed. Yeah. And there's a lot of alcoholics who are in mental relapse or have been yeah. in emotional relapse. And uh, it's scary. Yeah. I don't know what meetings are going to look like when, when we're, when we can be fully back and feel comfortable. I haven't, I still haven't felt comfortable going back to the smaller environment of an AA meeting in person. Okay. Uh, uh, right here in, in in our particular county, we're at this point surprisingly one of the two highest counties for a positivity rate in 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 the state right now. Hmm. Uh, so you know, technically, we should be wearing masks all the time in public places indoors uh, because of the level we've reached that criteria, wow. and I, we're not. <laughs> yeah, well, I I think the the experience for the past couple of years. Uh, there's part of me that, you know, I guess why or this and that. And, and I guess I'm reminded of the old, you know, kind of, you know, God of my understanding does, does things every now and then to say, Hey, by the way, I'm in charge, not yeah. you. So how are you going to cope with something I've, I've given you that right. I know you can cope with, but where are you going to turn? You're going to turn to right. me, you're going to turn to alcoholism. You're going to turn to, what are you going to turn to? And, um, yeah, great way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, and that—that's where acceptance and gratitude; those those are the bottom line. They work together. This is the way things are. Mm-hmm. What can I do about the fact that there is a pandemic around the whole wide world? Right. <laughs> Talk about powerless. That's pretty significant. You're right, because. There's the natural feeling that it's happening to me. It's like, yes. no, it's happening to us. That's right. And then, so I accept its existence. Mm-hmm. It's there. I'm grateful that all kinds of things are available to me, not the least of which, and probably what the most of which is, my relationship with my higher power thanks to the 12 steps. Mm. That I have as the number one piece of my toolkit. And you put those together and you say, okay, what can I do? How can I cope? 
And you have those tools. They're right there. But we are scared. Things like fear, fear of relapse mm-hmm. is one. Uh, I, I don't want to go back to drinking, but I don't sit around anymore worrying about it. Uh, I mean, if that, that would be really being obsessed. Yeah. If after 33 years, all I do is sit around and say, I don't want to drink. I don't want to drink. I don't, it's not going to go anywhere. No. What do I do instead? Yeah. Um, and that's what provides long-term recovery is that opportunity to say, oh, I can do this or I can do that. Or I still have this relationship and I can talk to that person. For me, Zoom was one of the great things that happened in the midst of, of, mm-hmm. uh, of the pandemic. I ended up connecting with people in my denomination, old friends, old colleagues from out east uh, that I haven't been in close contact with in years. Yeah. And yet we would get together at meetings of all kinds, do things online, talking. Wow, <laughs> this is fun. Yeah. And it kept it kept me occupied. It kept me moving forward. So that answered the question, what can I do? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Stay connected. Yeah. Stay connected. And that's that's bottom line. Of, that's one of the bottom lines of recovery. OK. So what I'd like to do at this point is talk a little bit about the, the step work, uh, as, as you mentioned, and not not so much, you know, step by step and all the you know, ins and outs, but more what what it was like when you first started working the steps versus, you know, today when you think of working the steps, you know, and that transformation, again, for someone who's listening and ne- either never worked the steps or someone who's worked them over and over and like, okay, how do you, how do you work them again? So talk about that a little bit. Mm. Well, I started out, the treatment program I went to, you had to go through the first five steps mm-hmm. before you discharged. I don't know many that do that still. And they, they probably they do, I'm sure. But uh, So what I learned to do first was the three-step waltz, you know. Okay. Am I powerless? Can I do anything about this? No. Is my life unmanageable? Yes. Okay. Here's step one. Step two, do I believe there's hope? Can I get out of this? Is there some some higher power that can, or is there something to give me a direction out of it? Yeah, I've discovered, yeah, there is. And then three, do it. Hmm. Turn it over. I learned, that was for me, how I stayed sober in the tough times during the first year. Okay. I, w- I would mentally go through step one, step two, step three. One, two, three. While I was in treatment, I did a first, I did the fourth step. I, I felt I did all that stuff from the one booklet that everybody was using at that point, uh, and met with the uh, met with the chaplain, mm-hmm. um, and talked about a lot of it, and, and some of which I had very had very seldom talked about to anybody, and it felt very good. Um, so that was on day twenty eight of thirty. That I did that, okay, which is about right. And I realized as I walked out of that and went back over to the to the unit that the only way I was going to get through this was go back and work step one again. And I continued, and they sent me then into outpatient primary treatment, 
And what do they do in outpatient primary treatment? Steps one, two, and three. Okay. Back and forth. And all, just, I, I never doubted that I, my life was unmanageable. That incident where I'm walking around the kitchen yelling was, was a good example of that. <laughs> right. I was fairly certain I was powerless because I had enough of those examples. But how do I turn it over? Interestingly, that step, pastor speaking here, in all honesty, that step took me two and a half years. Wow. For me, that, yes, I believe there was a higher power that could restore me to sanity. I believe step two was correct. Right, right. For I will, you, I will. Right, right. I will stipulate for the court that step two is correct. Yes, right. For you, it, yes. Nice. But why would God want to do that for me? Hmm. Yeah. And that was the internal stuff. That was. That's all the. That's all the baggage that we bring. Yeah. Um, and that's still hard to talk about in some ways, but after thirty years, it's it's back there. So it took me a long time to work on that it took me a long time to accept it. and of course then you go back to the first step when you can't do step three you go back to step two step two in the morning you're back to step one um and of course is your life unmanageable yeah do you believe you're powerless yeah so why are you trying to tell god what to do you must believe you have power yeah and that was that was for me the final push that was <laughs> that was helped along by a retreat I went to. It was a clergy retreat, mm-hmm. and this is one of those significant points. And it was about this was about three years sober, but this this cemented the whole step one for me. At one of the sessions, it, uh, it was run by a Catholic uh, bishop and nun who were known for their spiritual direction. Okay. And in one of the sessions, the sister was talking about the death and dying process. Uh, At that point, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was something we'd all as pastors learned about her stuff, Mm -hmm. the stages of death and dying. And she was going through them, and she came to the end, and the last stage, as we work through our own mortality of death and dying, is to come to the idea that I accept it anger fear all those other things bargaining then you come to acceptance and she's talking about this and then she stops and i swear she looked right at me even though she didn't know who i was and said and when you've reached the final stage of death and dying you've reached the first step of alcoholics anonymous and i went wow (laughs) and it, it was just it just washed over me like a tsunami hmm. of acceptance wow. that's what it's all about and that has that forever changed how i look at the steps not that it made me work them better eventually okay. i did but it, it was that it was one of these eye-opening insights that said this is powerful stuff yeah this is reality 
And this is what's going to get you through the rest of your life, Barry. Yeah. And practice these principles in all our affairs. So you mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit about an experience with the eighth and ninth step. Can you share with that with us uh, today? Well, I understand how powerful eight and nine are to be and how they can be. And I did. I, I had made a list like that way back as part of my fourth step and all mm-hmm. of that. Um, and where, when, and wherever possible, when things occurred, I would, I would have and have the opportunity. I would, I would make those amends, and I, I did a number of, them. Um, not the least of which, obviously, was with my family, my wife, and my daughter, and and the only way to do that was by living mm-hmm. these principles in all my affairs. There, uh, my brother and I had been. Um, we weren't estranged. We just didn't talk to each other. Okay. Uh, I, I'm the older brother. Uh, our parents died when both of us were young. I was the older brother. I was 13 when our mom died and 16 when our dad died. But we had never been close. Um, at one point, due to a number of circumstances, uh, I decided, well, maybe I better make an amend to him. Mm-hmm. Um I was eight years sober. Okay. Uh, getting right to things right when it's important. Uh, <laughs> and so I wrote him a letter. Hmm. And in all but said, I'm sorry if I hurt you, but a lot of it's your fault. Ooh. It wasn't quite that blunt. and But I'm sure... If he if he looked at it very closely, he might have seen that. Hmm. So the next time I'm, I'm my sponsor and I would go around to meetings and we were heading someplace to a meeting. And I said, hey, you know what? I did a night step with my with my brother. He says, really? I didn't know you had a brother. Ooh. <laughs> OK. And so I told him about it. And then I told him what I said in the letter. And. um since he was driving, he couldn't hit me. Uh, <laughs> he said, I think you need to think about that some more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was so proud of myself. Hey, I sure. did this on my own, and which, of course, is always dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so I, find, I and did end up doing another nice step with my brother. Uh, I had a reason to call him and we talked and I talked about myself. I didn't talk about him. I didn't talk about anything else. It was at a moment when I realized that the two of us were really quite similar Mm. and that what I was reacting to in my brother was what I was doing myself. Yeah. And uh, it was, it was, but that was another year and a half. That was a year and a half between those two events. Um, doing amends, and I learned at that point that doing amends works because you're no longer a prisoner of yourself yeah. at, at that, but you're also opening the door to a relationship again. Hmm. And my brother and I did develop a relationship. I mean, 
we're never going to be close friends for a number of reasons. He's, you know, we don't live near each other. He's back in Pennsylvania and I'm, I'm out here. I've been in the Midwest for, uh, 35 years. Um, but we do keep contact. Um, and we, we have been together. We did special things together and that's been fantastic. And that's part of that opening up of life that these steps have given me. Yeah. It's just amazing. I, I, I shake my head and I'm so, and I am so fortunate that, uh, they came along when they did. I was 40, right in the middle of the midlife. And, mm. uh, and how old was your daughter when you got sober? Uh, she was in second grade. She was uh, seven years old at the time, you know, okay. almost eight, almost eight. Uh, and that's one of those mo- memories that will live forever. I remember the morning I was leaving for treatment. My wife took her to school. Uh, after I had, well, I had sat there and, and hugged her and said, I'm going to be away. I'm going to be gone. She knew we told her that the day before. And I just started crying and it was, it was the most hurtful crying. I mean, it hurt so deep. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I wanted life to be better, whatever that meant, because I had no idea what any of that meant at that moment. I just, this was Okay. Uh, what does all this mean? Yeah. So, and and we're friends. My daughter and I are friends. Uh, her her mom and I are st- <laughs> are still married. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, just uh, earlier in April, we celebrated our fiftieth anniversary. Oh, that's awesome! Which which would have been it would never have happened if right. it were not for the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and recovery and the community and the awareness that God has given me. Awesome. From some of the background information we talked about, uh, you said about two and a half years you were needing mental health support and you went on medication and and that started you to question a lot of things. And and I'd like you to talk about that for for the folks listening. Yeah, uh, 1988 to 90, Two years, 1990-91. Got to remember that the only medication we had was antabuse. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we now know as healthy, quote-unquote, healthy antidepressants that are not habit-forming or non-addictive did not exist Mm -hmm. at that point. At least none that worked well. Prozac was just at being introduced at that point. Right. Uh, so, we're, if you're listening and you've grown up since the 1990s, this is this is ancient history. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, at about two and a half, at about two years, a little past two years, I was, I was, all of the depression, all of the anxiety issues that I had had that. Now I know, or then I began to know, I had been medicating against by my drinking uh, and other chemical use. We're still there. Mm-hmm. My wife and I got into an argument one day. And 
it at first it was like I had to fight back, you know, you're wrong or so on. And then I I just stopped and started crying hmm. and said, I don't know what to do. I go to meetings. I was going to six meetings, five and six meetings a week still. It was essential. It was some of the best, the best I could feel during many days was when I went to meetings. And I said, I remember that one of the doctors back at the, at the psych, psychiatric hospital said, maybe sometime you'll have to look at depression. And if we didn't in those days, they didn't do that automatically like right. we do today. Okay. So I got in touch with a, with a psychiatrist and met with with him and and was put on at that point Prozac, mm -hmm. which was the new one. It was the only one that was used consistently, and it worked. Mm -hmm. um, I knew all the stuff that it doesn't change your mood. It's not like taking the benzodiazepines which i had taken before mm -hmm. uh which is not which at, for me at that point was nothing more than alcohol and pill form yeah. so it uh this is different these antidepressants do other things i mean, don't need to go into that stuff but, and it worked it worked however the whole idea of being free of all medications yeah. was, and in still way, in many ways, still part of a number of AA groups. They'll talk, people don't talk about being on antidepressants very much at AA because they know somebody in the group will say to them, you shouldn't be taking those. Correct. And I had experience where there was a member of our church who was, who was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. And he had, I mean, it was, it wasn't yeah. a bad <laughs> And uh, one of our common friends who was also in the program, this guy was not in the program, but one of our common friends said, you shouldn't be taking that. You should be able to do this by doing something just like 12 steps. Yeah, right. And, and But that's still in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. Am I really still sober? Am I just taking this medication? And at that point, I called it a drug. Am I just taking a drug to make me feel better? Uh, as time went on, I, I accepted it and didn't talk about it yeah. at meetings. Although I did talk with my sponsor and he agreed, he understood, he knew what was going on. Um, there was somebody else in our AA group, an older gentleman who was ta still taking a benzodiazepine and it was not a commonly known thing, but it was a small group of us who knew it because of uh, severe uh, crowd paranoia. Okay. Uh, he was he was sober. And I think watching him helped me that, see that. He eventually got off the benzodiazepine. Uh, and, uh, but he would not have stayed sober had he not been on it. Yeah. Because uh, that overwhelming uh, reaction that all those things, and that's where being in a community where you can talk with individuals, you know, who you can talk to and who you can't, obviously, yeah. uh, helped me because I could talk about it, I could react to it. I had other friends who 
were not necessarily in, in alcohol or drug recovery, but who knew the story and, and had their own recovery stories. So I had people that I could talk to and that I, I was in touch with. I can't overstress how important that is. Yeah. That's why AA works. That's why 12 steps work. That's why celebrate recovery uh, works, you know, it's, uh, from a Christian perspective or some of the other ones that are out there for the upper other religious faiths, uh, as well as the secular ones, smart recovery. Hmm. It gives you the chance to be among people and you learn. Yeah. But it was, that was, that took a few years. Actually, again, you know, I'm slow. I, I, I like to hang on to the old stuff because yeah. uh, it helped me so much when I was there. I mean, oh, look at how wonderful I felt. Yeah, right. Yeah. But uh, it's to be open to possibilities of change because today I'm not the same person that I was when I got sober. And not because I've been sober, but because the world is different. My body is 33 years older. Mm-hmm. My brain has had a lot more experiences. I've faced other traumas and other situations that have given me new insights into life. And these all need to be merged under that practice, these principles in all my affairs. Yeah. yeah. How do I handle a pandemic? Mm-hmm. Is, is the best example of the past few years. You remind me of uh, a speaker who was talking about the traditions, specifically the third tradition. I think the, the only crime membership is a desire to stop drinking. And he he said, yeah, he says, this, this is an interesting one. He says, because, you know, we love to talk about how many people we save, but we forget to talk about how many people we kill. He, yeah. says, you know, he says, with these careless and insensitive remarks about what we should be putting in our body, and he says, because we've got a lot of doctors in AA, but we don't have a lot of physicians. <laughs> and uh, and it just kind of, I'll say, right-sized me in the sense of like, you know, who, who am I to tell anybody? You know, that, that, you know, if I haven't, if I don't have a professional degree, if I haven't examined them, if I don't know the circumstances of their life for me to go out and just say, right. you're not sober because of, you know, fill in the blank. And, right. uh, you know, it's just... It's 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 too bad that that I'll, I'll say those myths still exist. You know, yeah. we had a there was a, a small group of individuals from a nearby community who I don't know if they had a home group. I think they were their own home group okay. because they would periodically show up at meetings okay. in our community. <laughs> the better the Bedouin community, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were always ready to tell us what we were doing wrong. Yes. Right. Constantly. Including, you shouldn't bother talking to doctors. And all of us in, the, all of us in our groups knew that we would tell ourselves, if they show up tonight, we're not going to engage them. We always did. Yeah. Because right. they got us so mad. But don't, you shouldn't trust doctors. Cause, and then somebody else would point, yeah, but the big book talks about how good doctors are and how important they yeah. are. Absolutely. Yeah, but, you know, they always had a yeah, but, uh, and they would be ones who would tell us we really weren't sober. We really weren't practicing AA as it should have been practiced and on and on and on. And those people are, are dangerous to other people's sobriety. Yeah, they really are. Uh, 
I don't think there's any real clear way that AA can do anything about them for lots of reasons, and I'm not sure they should do anything about it. Uh, it's up to the individual groups and meetings. Yeah. Uh, you know, that there was a controversy. Actually, it was a scandal of a group in D.C. about 10 years ago or so where uh, they they were acting very cult-like yeah. and uh, sure that's going to happen because we happen to be made up of individuals and of course the old line used to go if you haven't met anyone in AA that you don't like you haven't gone to enough meetings right there's more people to meet yeah yeah because uh, there are people and for some I may be one of them hmm. you know because yeah, I'm I'm not necessarily towing the line that they think I should tow, and they're not towing the line I think they should. I mean, it's yeah, it, it's a an individual program. Yeah, uh, I was actually uh, asked to uh, speak at a meeting, and I got there a little early just to, uh, you know, because I didn't know where I was going actually, and. Uh, this is a time when there was no MapQuest or, see, look at that, MapQuest. <laughs> Even MapQuest is old now, right? There was, yeah, you know, yeah. you had the Rand McNally book, yeah. So I got there early and I'm sitting and uh, it, it's not highly populated. I don't know, there's probably 10 people sitting there and, and I'm listening to them talk about a conversation and uh, about, you know, how the meeting, you know, the Wednesday night meeting is, you know, because the young people meeting took all our meet people and back and forth and, they shouldn't have young people meeting, and you know, and I'm sitting there probably with um, a neighborhood of 20 years of sobriety. Then maybe not knowing that I got sober with young people because that's all I had at the time. Because the older people, who guys like me now, are like I wasn't going to hang around with them, so I needed those young people. So they're they're talking about it as if I'm not one of the young people, you know, because I, I don't look like them, right? And they they're going on, and I'm just kind of listening and listening, and so. Um, they look over at me. They're, well, what do you think? And I said, "Well, I don't know what's worse. You know, them deciding that they want to start a meeting with a little bit more their culture, or us sitting here criticizing it. I said, you know, if that's what they need, that's what they need. And if if you know if you don't need it, okay. But I said you don't really know what it's like getting sober at twenty one. Do you? I mean, I do." It's hard because everybody you know is drinking and the only people that aren't drinking are the people in AA. (laughs) So if that's what they need, leave them alone. Just leave them alone. What what do you care? You know, wasn't, it wasn't affecting AA as a whole. It might've affected that meeting. All right, then go help them. I don't know. It it was just one of these, I I sat there long enough and I kept my mouth shut until they asked me, you want, you really want my opinion? I think us sitting here stewing about it isn't much more spiritual than, than whatever you say they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're human. Yeah. We're human beings and we're going to react and we need to be able to catch ourselves or have someone catch us and we be open to listening. Right. That openness and willingness that we talk about. Yeah. In some of the background information, you had uh, talked about a story where, you the outcome was much better than you had planned, and I'd like you to share that with the audience, if you could, please. Yeah, this may be, up until the pandemic, this one of the more important, one of the most important 
challenges I faced and I walked away from it. The one, you know, I talked about the one at the board meeting and, and the use of drugs, mm-hmm. uh, medication. This one was, I was in the midst of a church conflict. Mm-hmm. We'd left the the church where I was serving when I, I got sober and was in a new congregation. Wife and I were co-pastors. And uh, there was an internal conflict going on. A lot of it aimed at my wife and myself. Okay. And, and you were about, what, how, about 13 years sober, I think? I was about 13 years sober. Okay. Yep. Um, this is now into the early 2000s. Okay. Um, and I... I thought things were going along okay. We were having a congregational gathering, a meeting to talk about things. We brought somebody in to help us deal with some of the issues. And, oh, maybe half an hour into this meeting, in walks one of the, one of my antagonists. Okay. <laughs> one of the people who was very vocal about attacking me. And, and when I saw that person walk in, my heart sank. I just went, oh, yeah. And I put my head down. I don't think I probably put it all the way down on the table, but I at least leaned, leaned forward, closed my eyes and remembered thinking, this isn't going to work. Why don't I just go get drunk? Mm-hmm. Wow. Which is not a thought I had had very often. <laughs> uh, I had been going to maybe three meetings a week at that point, some mm-hmm. weeks, depending on, on what I, my schedule was. But, but when I thought that, I just went, oh. and then it took a second or two. And I thought, did I really just say that? Yeah. Do I really believe that's true? Which ended up in about three more seconds saying, that's the dumbest thing I've said in a lot of years. Mm-hmm. And so I said, all right, no, I'm not going to let the situation do that to me. I'm not powerless over how I respond. You know, and I had learned that, but this was where I, I I think the first time I applied it. Okay. The serenity prayer says, accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. I knew that I didn't have to respond by drinking. I'm not powerless at that moment. I'm powerless over the fact that it came into my head. Sure, sure. But I'm not powerless over what I do about it. So went on with this with this session and everything. The person did not do any antagonistic stuff. They just, I felt they just sat there staring at me the whole time. They may not have been, but you know, I went home and I said to my wife, we got to sit down and talk. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I told her what happened flat out. Okay. And she says, are you okay? I said, yes, I am. I picked up the phone and called my sponsor right. at that point. And after about, and we, I don't know whether we went for coffee that night. It was, maybe we did. I don't know. Or went to a meeting. We could have even gone, I might have even gone to a meeting. I don't remember those specifics. The next morning, I called my district president, who happened to live in the next town over. And I said, we got to get together. 
And mm-hmm. I got to tell you what happened. And I did. Uh, and I went back to five meetings a week. Mm-hmm. Okay. Throwing in a sixth if I, if I felt I had the time on Sunday night. For me, that was a reminder that it's always back there. Okay. It's always real. I haven't had that thought like that since. But I, again, as we talked earlier, the whole process of mental and emotional relapse. Yeah. I mean, that happens all the doesn't happen all the time. That's not fair. Uh, that's a typical alcoholic statement if I ever heard one. Yeah. Um, it happens. Of course it happens. Yeah, it still because happens. My brain's, yeah. It still happens because my brain works that way. That's yeah. how everyone's brain works. On some level, we have these patterns that we fall back into. And yeah, okay. But that doesn't mean I'm going to do anything about it. Except make myself miserable if I don't talk about it for three months. Yeah. Right. Um, so those are the points of my sobriety. Uh, that have just been powerful and they all lead back to the principles of the steps. I keep talking about that. The other piece I've learned is that just, this has to do with plateaus. Uh, We do reach those times and places where, well, this is about as far as I can go. Mm. Yeah. I'm as sober as I'm going to get. Uh, and that's a plateau because everything's going okay. Maybe be going excellent. We, okay, we've, we're at the end. Everything's good. I know how to handle it. And then a pandemic shows up. <laughs> Take your pick. And it's a, my, I've come to believe it's kind of like that when you're at the last step of, of the death and dying process. You're at the first step of AA. Mm-hmm. Just when you think you've gone as far as you can go, the door opens and you've only just begun yeah, right. And that's exciting. Even when it's painful, I can say it's exciting. It's scary. Sometimes you say, I'm not going to go through that door. I'm not going to do that. But that may be enough for me to figure out what I need to do to keep that from happening or to find a better way or a way. And that better way or different way will always include other people. It will always include a higher power of some kind, whatever that is. It will always include honesty to myself and those around me. They have to be there. There has to be mindfulness. There has to be that 11th step of prayer and meditation, however you want to define those. Uh, They have to be there. And how do I practice the principles or what tools do I have that I'm not using? Or what tools am I using that don't seem to work anymore because I've got rusty or they don't apply anymore? Yeah. You know, MapQuest <laughs> doesn't right, yeah. apply anymore. You know? uh, yeah. It's you know, the right tool for the right job, too. Like right. one of my yeah. favorite expressions, you know, I can use a hammer to start a fire, but it's going to take me a sure. while. Right. That's right. Right. The thing that it triggered for me in what you're saying is, um, Someone said, with some of these reawakenings, or uh, I call them second surrenders in, in recovery, that, uh, you know, someone said, well, aren't you glad you stayed sober long enough to let God help you with this? And, and I was like, what, what are you talking about? He says, well, because you probably think God just cares about you. I said, yeah. 
He says, well, you're wrong. So what do you mean? He says, God adores you. Mm. And, and that, that gave me like goosebumps when he said that. He says, you know, if yeah. God had a refrigerator, your, your, your life would be up on his refrigerator. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, me too. Uh, well, uh, it's like, I've been, uh, wow. <laughs> and, and he says, that's how much he adores you. Wow. He says, there's no way he's letting you go. And I was like, because it, it was a tough time. It's like, there's no way I can get through it. No, you can't. But, right. but he can walk you through. And I was like, because it really tested my, my faith in a higher power. You know, so you're mm-hmm. saying God can get me through this. <laughs> of course. He adores you. And I was like, could you stop saying that? Because, <laughs> right? Because I'm not worth that. Like you said earlier about you know, the, yeah. the worth yeah. that we all, you know, that we kind of get stuck with sometimes. And, and so I become much, much better with that idea. And now when I, when I pass it along, I, I get the same like f- eyebrow up, like, whoa. Mm. And, um, you know. That's going to be in my sermon in two weeks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You just got to wow. give me credit once, and then it's yours. How's that? Is that okay? All right. <laughs> I'll say Howard from New Jersey. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and and you know, some of this that, that we've been talking about kind of gave you a calling to to write a book, and and it's called Mastering Recovery. And you know, I, I looked at some of the the highlights of that, and uh, you know, c- can you can you give us just just a little little small opening into that? I called it Mastering Recovery based on the fact that I learned this idea through a book by Daniel Pink, an author who, who the book is called Mastery. Okay. <laughs> Very simple. Talks about the process of becoming, and mastery isn't becoming a an expert at something. It's getting better at something that's important to you. Mm. You're learning to master it. You never reach mastery. Okay. It's an ongoing process. You're always getting better. You can always get better. Won't go into the story behind it, but why that was important to me. And I, as such, it was an idea about how we build long-term sobriety, yeah. which we can call recovery. The book is not written for people with less than two years sober sobriety. Okay, I'm sure there will be those who read it and... But I'm, a, I'm enough of an alcoholic to know that if I had picked that book up with six months sobriety, I would have thought, well, here, I'm going to read this and learn how to do it. And I'm going to and in doing so, I would have missed out on all the important foundations that I need to build in my first two years. Right. Right. First, you need it to takes, learn. Yeah, you need to learn fractions and then algebra. Right. Yeah, got it. Right. And, and while this may not be rocket science, <laughs> uh, it's more than just go to meetings and stay sober yeah which is the foundation you got to get sober you got to experience sobriety you got to find the good points of it and then you're going to hit like i did it two years or three years or five years you're going to hit spots where you're going to ask those questions how have how can you how will you build become better at mastery first and the three parts of it are simple You, you first of all you begin to believe you can do it Right. Because you've done one, two, three, you've turned it over, et cetera. You know about practicing the principles. Then you do it. It's practice, practice, practice. And then when you're done practicing, you practice some more. Yeah. And and you keep adding to that. And, and you keep finding new ways to live, new ways to experience life, new ways to be sober. And then third, 
you, you end up with a, a purpose. You end up with a direction for your life. That's the basic three. And they change, they shift, yeah. they can be narrow focused, they can be widely focused. Uh, and so I wrote this book, hoping that it gets people to, uh, to who are have more than two years, probably closer to four or five, because most even at two to four years think they have it all figured out. I know I did. <laughs> right. If I had if I hadn't run into my depression, it might have taken a few more years. Um, because it's at that point that you all the stuff that got you into treatment in the first place have had some kind of answer relationships, all that, they're now in the past. Those issues are not there in the way they used to be. And now you got what's in front of you. Is this all there is? Yeah. Am I just going to sit around and go to meetings and say I'm powerless and, and my life is going to be dull and boring? No, it doesn't have to be. And that's where you develop sobriety. Uh, and since I, I wrote the book and I've done a number, a couple of workshops, a couple, three workshops on it, what has just floored me was people with 20, 25, one guy with 40 years sobriety came up to me and said, I've never heard any of this before. Yeah. And I mean, I know there's not much written. Any book that talks about long term sobriety is going to spend two thirds of it on the first year and how to get into treatment. And there's excellent material out there. That's yeah. fantastic stuff. I'm. I somebody said to me they were going to buy the book and I said you have two years sobriety and they said no and I said then don't buy it hmm. uh, I said work on where you are today yeah and, yeah and so that's 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 one of the ways I hope to give back and reach out to others and it's kind of living that idea that I already said that uh, just when you think you've come to the end and this is all there is you've only just begun yeah I remember when we first uh, when we did the little first initial meeting, and we talked a little about uh, Bill's letter about emotional sobriety, and, right? And right. Uh, how there's there's movements around that and books on that, and um, and that was one of those things where you know I had to stay sober long enough to realize that I yeah. needed that. Yeah, you know, I had to stay sober long enough that that needed attention now, and right. even today. There's some, you know, I, I got 33 years and there are some things going on in my life that uh, need some more attention. And I right. want to say, well, I should know better by now. I shouldn't. Yeah. You know what? It just wasn't on the radar. So, no. or, or the other one is, well, you've never done it before. So why would you know how to do it if you never did it before? Right. It's just like you're talking with we the mastery. It's like, it's like, oh, how, yep. how, how do I shoot if, you know. Eighty-seven percent free throws, like the pros. Well, you got to be a pro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to show throw a lot more free throws than two every week. Right. And with uh, with the mastering recovery, one of the, the I mean, there's a lot there. Uh, I just want to highlight for myself, you know, the the values and purpose. And I, right. I think for a guy who, if if you when you meet me today, you would never know that I had little to no value in myself, and I really had no purpose. And, you know, the transformation of that, and once I felt I had those things, it, it was like, I, I felt like, not that I could never go backwards, but that like, oh, I got it. Now I, oh, now I know where to go. And mm -hmm. and I think that eludes a lot of people, I, I know in particular, 
well, what's next? It's like, well, well, who are you helping? What problem would you like to solve today? Oh, I don't know. All right, then let's get let's get let's get on that. And um, it's like many years ago when I read uh, Victor Frankl's book, you know, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Which I, I, I would recommend for anybody, really. There's no... So would I. You know, not just alcoholics, not just Jews, not just, you know, just when he talked about all the things that people found purpose in in such a horrible time when literally day to day they didn't know if they were next, um, you know, because he talks about the Holocaust. And, and I remember him... The one line where he says, you know, I, I, he knew when people gave up is when they started to sell their cigarettes. Mm. And because that was their only comfort. And he said, oh, they're done. And I've seen that in recovery. Like you see people come in and they've tried and, and you just watch them and like, wow, I'm probably never going to see that guy again. Like as he's talking, as you're like, wow, he's done. And it's just one of those spooky moments of, yeah, I've said this on the podcast before. It's like, you know, we talk about our first 90 days. Hey, let, what, what do the last 90 days look like? What are we, what are we doing before we leave? Because we don't have to. So, right. Uh, so, yeah. I, I agree with you. It's so real. So important. Um, what are the last, I like that. What are the last 90 days? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Man's search for meaning. Yeah. Man's search for meaning. Yeah. And a, a, a couple of books I'd recommend, you've mentioned that one. Yeah. Uh, one for those who have a, a perhaps a more Christian bent to them, uh, Breathing Underwater okay. by Father Richard Rohr. Uh, he, uh, he's a Franciscan contemplative mystic writer. He talks about the 12 steps. It's a book on the 12 steps. Okay. Powerful book. One of the better I've ever read. Ernie Larson and Ketchum, I forget her first name, wrote a book called Spirituality of Imperfection. Yeah. And Ernie is a was an AA historian. He's yeah. told the story. And he, he wrote the history of AA, and he called Not God. Yep. It was the name of the book. So those two books are two that over the years have given me uh, the big book, obviously, uh, yeah. and uh, all kinds of stuff around that uh, those two give really good ideas. Uh, the imperfection, we're not perfect. We're not going to ever be perfect. No. And uh, learning how to breathe underwater, that's an image so, uh, in terms of working the steps. How do you get through today? Okay. Great. Yeah. So uh, as we wrap up here, is there anything that else you'd like to highlight or talk about? Or did I maybe forgot to tease out a little? I don't think so. I, I, uh, okay. I would just say to anybody in the first two years that's listening, keep at it. It's worth every second that you put into it. Uh, be, be faithful to yourself. And I'll add now, remember that God adores you. He doesn't just love you. <laughs> that's great. And, uh, and if you're past two years, wow, there's so much ahead. Uh, and you'll, you'll never believe it as you keep working, as you keep going, as you keep going. It won't be work. One of the lines I use is it's not recovery. Isn't something we do when it becomes a lifestyle. It's who we are. Yeah. Yeah. And I am grateful. So grateful that I have it today. I still have it today. Mm. 
Thank you for that. I uh, just want to thank you again for uh, taking a little time with us and, and sharing your story. Thank you. And uh, you know, I, I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm gonna take a lot of a lot of this with me today as well, and uh, carried on in my own recovery. And and me too. It's another day of staying sober, and you've helped. Thank you. We have come to the end of this episode of the Seasons of Sobriety podcast. I trust that you were able to identify with the personal story of our guest and perhaps apply some of their experience to give you the hope needed to persevere through your own journey. If you'd like to contact the show, please send an email to podcast at seasonsofsobriety.com. The email address can be found in the show notes. This podcast has been completely self-funded. If you believe today's episode has been beneficial, I ask that you either contribute a little extra this week to your home group or another organization close to your heart. Until next time, Remember, if you have trouble practicing the principles of the steps in all your affairs, you may have too many affairs.